0: your last meal. I'm your host, Rachel Bell. and each episode, I interview a celebrity about what they would choose to eat for their last meal. Then we explore the history of that food, the culture, and whatever else we can cram into 30 minutes. Today on the program, mm-hmm. Fran Drescher.
1: She was in a bridal shop in Queen.
0: Fran is probably best known for starring in the TV show, The Nanny.
2: Hello, I'm Fran Drescher. I'm checking in. <laughs> Excuse me, Miss Fran Drescher, but I am your biggest fan. Oh, thank you. You really do talk like that. Who would make
0: this up? (laughs) But she's also an environmental activist and creator of the Cancer Schmancer movement. Fran also wrote a best-selling book called, wait for it, Cancer Schmancer. And of course, there's her signature
2: laugh. My last meal meaning if I knew I was going to die and only had one more meal to eat or the last meal that I had today.
0: (laughs) We'll chat about what it's like to be a gay icon, what it's like being married to a gay man, and Fran is the first person who has objected to the show's central question. She didn't really want to talk about what her last meal is.
2: I would rather think about my favorite foods than what my last meal would be.
0: And if you're a picky eater, or you used to be a picky eater, or you're trying to raise a picky eater, I chat with an expert about what makes humans picky and what you can do to reverse it. Plus, a woman so picky, she actually made producer Aaron feel, in his words, every emotion. I've never eaten a vegetable or a fruit. All of that coming up. But first, Fran Drescher. One of the things you're most well known for is your voice and your accent, and I was wondering if over the years anybody like an agent or a director had tried to get you to get rid of your accent, or you were told like, you'll never make it in this business, kid, not with an accent like that.
2: Uh, you know, of course, there are people that think inside the box and couldn't see the value of a funny woman with a funny voice, even though that has uh, risen to the top um, many times throughout, you know, show business history. And I did make an attempt to try and speak San's accent and uh, also the nasal factor. But In so doing, it was so controlled and carefully thought out that I really didn't have the spontaneity of my sense of humor and and personality, which is what I had already become known for, and therefore I wasn't really successful at doing that. Subsequent to that, I I did do a Neil LeBute play where I did speak – you know, kind of like mid-Atlantic, they call it. I had a dialogue coach, and I was able to do that. But I've become so well-known through The Nanny, which I'm not complaining about at all. I feel very, very blessed that that character has given me such global success and notoriety. And I don't care if I never play any other part but a girl from New York, because that character has opened so many doors for me on so many levels. And now at this stage in my life... It opens and continues to open opportunities for me to speak on the platforms that I'm most passionate about. So I'm just blessed and grateful with no complaints.
0: Well, with a mother and a grandmother who are all from New York, I love a girl from New York, too. Fran likes to use her celebrity for good, not for evil. She speaks at a lot of events about the things she's passionate about. Fran is a cancer survivor, and when I met up with her, she had just stepped off the stage as keynote speaker at an end brain cancer luncheon in Bellevue, Washington.
2: It took me two years and eight doctors to be diagnosed with uterine cancer. I always say I got in the stirrups more times than Roy Rogers, (laughs) and uh, I wrote what became the New York Times bestseller, Cancer Schmanza, because I didn't want what happened to me to happen to other people. But then I realized that it does happen to other people, misdiagnosis and mistreatment. So I began to go on speaking tours and formulate a vision for what I thought needed to change in this country. And first and foremost is early detection, catching on arrival, 95% survival. And the reason why we lose loved ones to cancer almost always is due to late stage diagnosis, which I think is unconscionable and needs to be changed. But part of that change is educating the public and motivating them on how to transform from being a patient into a medical consumer and to look at their lifestyle and how that's contributing to weakening their immune system that's aiding and abetting in the inflammation that ultimately leads to cancer. That's one prong of the cancer transfer movement. Another is prevention. How we live our lives is greatly contributing to why we get sick. And we are exposed to a cacophony of chemicals by big business. We can change that simply by using more intelligent consumerism. If we stop buying, they'll stop making, and we can dictate more responsible manufacturing trends. The home is the most toxic place we spend the most time and more toxic than living across the street from an oil refinery. So what are you putting in your mouth? Everything you eat, because you are what you eat. What are you putting on your skin? What are you cleaning and gardening with? Read the ingredients. If they're not exclusively what might have grown in your grandma's garden, don't buy it, because you don't need industrial farmed food that's doused with pesticides, herbicides, hormones, antibiotics, animals that are living Dickensian lives, eating food that's unnatural and unhealthy for them. What are we doing? And and for what purpose? To make a bunch of big chemical companies richer? I think not.
0: Fran is also an advocate for the LGBTQ
2: community. I'm sort of known for the LGBTQ uh, because as a celebrity I, I kind of many years ago became a gay icon and then when my ex-husband came out as being gay, I was just sort of elevated to Judy Garland status.
0: <laughs> I actually have been curious about how do all these straight women become gay icons? I mean, it's like you and Bette Midler. And sure. what have you been told through the years by gay men why they look at you in this way?
2: Oh, I, you know, I mean, they I think that they generally like women who are unmasked, and love wearing clothes in a very upfront and center, unapologetic way. And I think larger-than-life characters uh, seem to be particularly popular with many members of the gay community. And I feel very honored that I have always been so profoundly embraced.
0: For the record, Fran looks amazing. Really, her skin is gorgeous. She was wearing this beautiful wrap dress. Her hair is shiny. So after she was talking so passionately about what foods you should put in your body and eating pure foods, I was extra curious about what she would choose for her last meal.
2: My last meal meaning if I knew I was going to die and only had one more meal to eat or the last meal that I had today? (laughs) The former. (laughs) Uh, The former. So that would mean that I would probably, I mean, because nobody really knows unless you're going to, you know, unfortunately having capital punishment. Uh, I guess it just boils down to what you love the most. Like if it, I always right, think of I it I as... I would rather do that. I would rather think about my favorite foods than what my last meal would be. But If it was your birthday, what would you want? There's a good way to look mm-hmm. at it. See, you're dancing in my light now. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, if it were my birthday and I were going to eat something, I think that it would probably be um, pasta. Pasta. As much as I want. And I love deliciously prepared, flavorful, organic vegetables. And I love caprese with organic heirloom, yellow tomatoes, and beautiful organic, you know, burrata or mozzarella cheese. And, uh, you know, uh, maybe for dessert, hmm, let's see, a zabayon maybe with fresh berries, sometimes maybe a chocolate souffle. And, you know, if I were drinking, I don't always drink, although last night I had some of Washington State's fine, you know, red wine from Walla Walla, Mm -hmm. which was really divine, then I would do a delicious you know, a glass of wine with it too. But I've learned that I can thoroughly enjoy myself without wine. So I'm a little more spare about it because I'm always clocking my inflammation and trying to keep it down. So everything like nightshade vegetables and things that are um, fermented, like wines and certain cheeses and soy sauce and things like that, I try and keep to a minimum. What kind of pasta do you want to jump into a bowl of? I think I like a twirly pasta. So it would have to be, um, you know, I like al dente, either linguine or spaghetti, probably the best. And then I try and not do a red sauce, because that would probably get Give me swollen hands the next day. Maybe just a splash of a red sauce with mostly butter and olive oil and salt and pepper and fresh basil, but there's so much I like. Uh, It's kind of easy. I like that kind of warm, homemade ricotta cheese that you just plop in and and mix it up together. Mm, I like a vodka sauce, which is a very light pink sauce. And uh, so, yeah, that would probably be the direction. Like, now you're getting me hungry. I know, I'm
0: thinking about it too. Fran's meal involves a lot of tomatoes, something that she actually doesn't really eat in her everyday life. And I happen to be someone who doesn't really like tomatoes. It's something I'm actually embarrassed about because I love food so much. I don't like people knowing that I have this everyday run-of-the-mill food that I don't really like. So we're going to focus the rest of the episode on being a picky eater. And when we come back, I chat with the pickiest person I have ever spoken to. This woman is a food lover's nightmare. We'll be right back. We're back. Duh. Why do people say that? It's so obvious that we're back. Do you have a super picky person in your life? Often this person is seven years old, but sometimes they are 37 years old, like Kathy Winslow, even though I don't know how old she is. She's an adult. She has children. She could be 37 and she doesn't like any foods. The list of things
3: I will not eat is probably much longer than the list of things I will eat. I eat no seafood, no vegetables, really no fruit except for apples. And that's only in a pie. I'll eat ground beef. Chicken once a month and turkey twice a year for Thanksgiving and Christmas. That's basically what I eat. Oh, and I just added steak to my like menu, so I don't eat much.
0: Kathy says she has never even eaten a vegetable, at least that she can remember. She probably did when she was a really small kid, and this makes Aaron, I don't know what, furious. You said that you were uh, feeling every emotion while you were listening to Kathy talk.
3: Every emotion. I, I am angry that someone would limit themselves. I feel sad for her. There is a whole, such joy comes from food and eating all sorts of food and the different flavors and textures. And I just worry about what somebody who limits their their food choices so severely, what's the rest of their life like? They can't, are they enjoying it to the fullest? I'm concerned.
0: And she said that her husband is not picky and that he cooks everything so that he can eat a variety. And I was thinking, what a snob I am. I probably would have dumped her because of this.
3: Yeah, I think it would be a deal breaker for most people.
0: Yeah, but she does say that she's perfectly healthy. She takes multivitamins to make up for the missing nutrients. I have excellent cholesterol. All my numbers are
3: great. The doctors kind of think I'm strange in that way. But I think because I've been eating this way my whole entire life that that's just what my body is used to. I'm not overweight. Why do you think you're like
0: that? What happened?
3: I think, I, I don't know. Um, I was the baby of the family, and if I said yuck, they would make me something else. And I look at something, and I'm like, oh, I can't even imagine putting it in my mouth. It just doesn't even look appetizing.
0: Do you think it's almost become a bit of a phobia, you know, with, with the vegetables and fruits to kind of recoil when you look at them?
3: Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's across the board. There's like candies and alcoholic beverages and it's just like I'm, I've gotten so ingrained in how I eat that I can't even imagine changing from it. It's like I do the same things every single day.
0: What do you eat on a typical week? What Do you eat the same things over and over?
3: I do. I'm, I am a creature of habit. So I eat the same thing for breakfast every single day and have for months and months and months. I eat a special K-Bar. For lunch, I normally eat taco time, normally two tacos, no lettuce, extra cheese. (laughs) And for dinner, I try to eat what the family is having just modified. So if they're having chicken, I cut enough off it to where it's like four bites and I'll have, you know, maybe some potatoes, but not the vegetable or anything.
0: And so when you say the family, are you married with kids? I
3: am married with kids. I'm married with two kids and I absolutely refuse to let my kids be picky So they will eat anything and everything.
0: So, yeah, how do you do that when it's not a, you know, mom's not eating this, but you have to eat this?
3: I've always just said, you know, I had to eat it until I was 18, which is inaccurate. But um, I've always said once you're 18, you can make a choice, but you have to. You know, you can have one dislike for a vegetable, one dislike for a fruit, and you don't have to eat those things. But everything else, you have to at least eat a tablespoon they're great travelers. They, they'll eat anywhere. They'll eat anything. They'll try anything at least once, which I will still to this day not do.
0: I have to say I feel really bad for Kathy. One thing she talked about that we didn't include is that it's really hard for her to eat at other people's homes because they're not going to take into account all of these things that she can't eat. So she said she's really good about pushing food around on her plate or she'll eat before she goes to someone's house for dinner. Oh. But can you imagine the stress and the embarrassment of eating like a child and having people constantly comment on it and you know, try to get you to eat stuff and you don't want to. I think it's
3: all a psychological trust issue. She specifically says that she she won't eat because she can't see the condition of these kitchens. She doesn't know how the food was prepared and whether there were sanitary things,
0: but she, but she eats a taco time, she eats fast food. So we're gonna take a quick break, but when we come back, I chat with a former picky eater who is now a picky eating expert who will tell us why we hate the things we hate. And she has a theory about why so many of us love to hate raw tomatoes. Stephanie Lucianovic used to be picky. And now she's a chef and a food writer. She wrote a book called Suffering Succotash, a picky eater's quest to understand why we hate the foods we hate.
1: So I was really picky for about 27 years, picky about not eating fish, uh, hardly any vegetables and really not any grains other than white rice, if you can even consider that a grain. And then I met my husband when we were both living in Cambridge, England, and he eats everything. But I was so embarrassed by how worldly he seemed, and that was compounded by the fact that he grew up on the East Coast in the D.C. area. So me being from the Midwest, I felt provincial and dumb and all of that. So I hid it from him, but he um, managed to introduce me to new foods, and I started to try them. And when I realized I didn't hate all the things I thought I did, or at least maybe I didn't hate them as much as I thought I would or was open to trying them, Uh, I started to seek out more foods that I previously hated and could come to love. I wanted to learn more about cooking, so I was watching the Food Network. I was getting every food magazine I could get. I was watching Jacques and Julia on WGBH and learning more and more about cooking, which then turned into a passion because of it. I just got so interested in it that I decided I wanted to, in the future, make that a career. I wanted to become a food writer or at least edit cookbooks for publishing, and then I got laid off from publishing, so I took my severance, and I decided to go to culinary school. After culinary school, well, I became a cheesemonger, and I edited and developed, helped develop a line of Williams-Sonoma cookbooks, got a job with KQED writing uh, for their food blog, and stuff just piled up from there.
0: So as a former picky person, she started looking into the science of pickiness
1: when babies start to get used to things other than formula or milk and they start having to taking in solids and textures, they can gag, understandably, because it's a new sensation. And when you gag, I've learned in studying the gag reflex, it's your body's way of protecting you from choking and dying. So if you gag on something, it does send a message to your brain that that food is dangerous and maybe you don't like it, you should stay away from it, it could kill you. At least for some kids who say they never like green vegetables, it's like one green vegetable made them gag potentially, and therefore their brain thinks the same thing about all green vegetables. Or one bad experience with a fruit or vegetable can lead to an association that you're going to have a bad experience with all future fruit and vegetables. So that's one side of things. That also is the... A potential explanation for why people have issues with texture, it's sending signals to your brain that something's not good for you, so you should avoid it. Beyond that, philosophically, you could say people just don't like the same flavors all the time. And maybe some of us dislike more flavors than others because we're all, you know,
0: wonderfully unique individuals. We're all snowflakes, Stephanie.
1: Yes. It's about rewiring your neurological pathways, but you have to want to do it and Relax, if you can, before facing down um, a disgusting food. Figure out what it is you don't like about it. Is it the flavor or is it the texture? Whatever it is, try to change it. Uh, Realize there's not one way to eat food. There's not one way to eat, uh, say, Brussels sprouts. You can like Brussels sprouts and not like them steamed. It's okay. I don't like them steamed. I only like them roasted. So... Change the flavor or change the texture. You can change the texture by from different cooking methods. Or my trick was or is to combine it with another texture. I still won't eat, say, um, leafy greens by themselves. I will always combine them with another texture so I don't have to deal with a mass of greens in my mouth. And changing the flavor, well, obviously cooking it in something that you like, but adding something else you like. In my case, it was usually cheese. And not necessarily cheese sauce to drown it all out, just maybe some hard cheese, uh, like Parmesan Reggiano shaved over it. it. It can get you to that level of, well, I'm eating cheese. I like cheese. Oh, I'm eating the greens with the cheese. They're not so bad. And you can sort of step by step then start to change your association with that food. Another thing that the neurologist in the New York Times article talked about was Having food in happy settings when you're with friends and family and you're having a good time because that additionally gives you the takeaway of I was happy when I was eating this food instead of when you're a kid and you're sitting at the table and your parents really want you to eat this food and you're all stressed out and they're stressed out and everything's negative, you're just always going to have a negative association with that food until that association can be changed.
0: During our conversation, Stephanie ended up asking me if I am picky. So I told her about my issues with tomatoes. Until I was 28 years old, I hated tomatoes in all forms. I didn't like the texture. I didn't like the seeds. They just had this kind of membraniness to them. I didn't like the flavor. Uh, usually when you get tomatoes you know, on a sandwich, they're out of season and they're more whitey pink than red. They're just not good. Uh, but when I was 28, I was given a warm yellow grape tomato off the vine in someone's backyard. And my mind was just totally blown. It was like candy. It was so sweet. Uh, I could just gobble them up. So now I like those tomatoes. I can eat tomatoes from the farmer's market. I can eat heirloom tomatoes, but I can't eat just a regular red Roma or beefsteak tomato. And I was really excited because Stephanie actually has a theory about this.
1: That's interesting. Tomatoes I found... um were one of the most hated foods. And it had to do with texture and, like, I don't love their skin. So I'm not a big fan of cherry tomatoes, but I like them sliced. And I always puree my sauce.
0: Yes, me too. As
1: well. And plenty of people feel the same way. A friend of mine is very specific, like, chopped salsa is okay. Big slices in my hamburger I'm going to pull out and throw away. You know, sometimes I wonder if it goes back to the idea that tomatoes being a member of the nightshade family and nightshade in some forms is deadly for us, and they used to think tomatoes were deadly too because they were red or whatever. But that's another other things that I found fascinating in my research was that there are instinctual explanations for why we dislike things, like kids not liking foods to touch, which may translate into adults continuing not to like things to touch. They think might go back to this, instinctual reaction to, if your foods are touching or combined, it means they've been contaminated and therefore are poisonous and are therefore, you know, don't eat them. But that's not something you can control. That's something, you know, buried way down deep where, you know, your instincts are buried. So finding out information like that I was like, yes, that explains it. So you can't make fun of people for that because you know what? You're not going to find picky eaters eating something that could actually really kill them with a neurotoxin we're still our evolutionist is probably trying to catch up with all the foods that we're now eating
0: so maybe there's hope for Kathy after all and maybe hope for Aaron not having high blood pressure listening to Kathy oof <laughs> but Kathy will only change if she wants to change which it doesn't really sound like she does i tried once i went and was hypnotized it didn't it didn't work and this was Fran Drescher's last meal of pasta, caprese salad, burrata, and Zabayon. You can check out Fran's work at cancerschmancer.org, which is also where you can make a donation. Thanks to Stephanie Lucianovic, author of Suffer and Succotash, a picky eater's quest to understand why we hate the foods we hate. And thanks to Kathy Winslow for being brave and admitting all of these things that she does not like to eat and uh, letting Aaron get so, so upset. If you like the podcast, tell a friend or even better, tell a friend in the digital era by subscribing, leaving a review. These reviews actually help get the podcast out there and get us into the ears of new listeners. This episode was produced by Aaron Mason and me, music by Prom Queen. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal.